0: Will you pray with me as we prepare our hearts to apply God's word? Uh, Father, we are grateful that you have brought us here today. We're grateful for this story that we just read. And uh, we pray that uh, this story would be used today by your spirit to challenge and to encourage us. Uh, Father, we uh, believe that you're present and that you're speaking. And uh, we want to we wanna be changed today. We want to be transformed. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, listen, I hope uh, you're having a great summer. It's great to be back here after a couple weeks. You know, uh, I, even myself got to take a couple weeks off to relax a little bit. Uh, a week and a half ago, we were in Costa Rica with the family. And one of the highlights of our trip there was this 13 uh, course zip line tour, okay? So basically, there's 13 zip lines. You climb up to the um, uh, top of tree, top of this tree, and, and it starts from there, and you're in the mountains, and uh, uh, there's this one, a zip line in particular, that goes for about three quarters of a mile. It's uh, 200 feet above the jungle floor. You're going into the clouds. You can't see no end. Now, one thing about me that some of you guys may not know is I'm scared of heights, I'm actually terrified of heights. One time I was r- running with my wife uh, in San Francisco and decided to, you know, to, to run over the Golden Gate Bridge like a, a third and two or, 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 or run in the bridge. I said, I got to turn around because I'm getting nauseous. So, um, But I, I managed to complete uh, the, the 13 course with those zip lines. I had to go because my five-year-old went ahead of me and I was like, I can't... <laughs> I can't be exposed just like that, so, so, uh, so I did it, and uh, now, you know, now you have the picture. So some of you have seen in my Facebook or Instagram these heroic pictures of me, you know, dropping down these zip lines 200 feet above the jungle floor, and you're like, man, pastor's courageous. You know, look at that. What you don't know is all the work that went in before I actually was able to do that. There was this inner dialogue going in my head saying, hey, listen, listen. Hundreds of people go there every day. No one has died yet. Even though the week before I was, I was looking online, doing a research, there was this lady that crashed her head, apparently, on one of the landings. I was like, yeah, she crashed her head. You can live without maybe, you know, your face. You get beat up with jujitsu every day anyways. So don't worry about that, but no one has dropped from that, any of those zip lines. And, and then you get there and you're, you know, climbing these stairs on the top of these trees and they're really, really high. And you're like, yeah, but this, you know, there's metal. Like, they did it properly, right? Cables are safe and secure. Okay? We don't know the work. You don't know the work that went in. All the mental, psychological preparation in order for me to look heroic in, in some of those pictures. Well, the, the story that we're uh, learning about today, the story of Gideon, is, is a heroic story. And, in fact, we're going to look at Gideon's life uh, today and, and, and also next week. And, you know, it's a story of this, this man that God raised to deliver God's people from the oppression of the Midianites. And we'll see next week that, you know, he, he, he only took 300 men to defeat the Midianites with, with very unconventional uh, weaponry. It's, it's an amazing story. If you've heard a sermon before on Gideon, I'm sure you're inspired, you're encouraged. This is a story that's used to encourage and to inspire us to live big, courageous lives, lives filled with purpose. But what we forget, what we don't know, is all the preparation work that went in in order for Gideon to become this mighty general that was used by God to deliver God's people in a great and amazing way. My prayer for you, obviously, is that you uh, would live courageous lives, that you would live big lives for God, that you would live lives of vision and lives of power. But, but in order to get there, there is a season of prep where you must gain God's perspective and you must enter God's preparation process. In fact, if, if, if you're willing to gain God's perspective and to undergo God's preparation process, you will find power to fulfill his purposes in your life, okay? And when you're able to gain God's perspective and undergo his preparation process, you will find his power to fulfill his purposes in your life. That's a big idea for today. So let's look at it. First, how do how do we gain God's perspective? What does it mean to gain God's perspective? I, I love this book and I love this story in the Bible because these stories are given to us. This book, the Bible, is given to us to expand our perspective of life. See, this is God's perspective. We believe that this book carries God's perspective of reality. And when we have access, when we devote ourselves to learning this book and learning about the stories that are in this book, which are true stories, we gain God's perspective of things. We expand our perspective of life and our perspective of things. If we, if we forfeit this book in our lives, we will live very small-minded lives. And here, here's what I believe, that the impact of your life is only as big as your perspective of life. Okay? Let me say that again, that the impact of your life is only as big as your perspective of life. So here is Gideon living a very small life. And we read about it in verse 11. So turn to verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth. This is a tree. This is a type of tree. And I often wonder, why didn't it say, say, a tree? Why do I have to know if it's a terebinth tree? But anyhow, um, but it's a terebinth tree at Oprah, not at, not at Oprah's show, but at, at Oprah, uh, which belonged to Joash, who was Gideon's father, And then here's what we read about Gideon. Meanwhile, right, while this is happening, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So let's try to understand this picture here. Uh, Gideon is living in a time where God's people is suffering the oppression and persecution of the Midianites. They are the surrounding most powerful nation. And what's happening is that every time that they harvest their crops the Midianites come in and they sack their villages and take away all their food. Every time that they put out their livestock, the Midianites will come out and will sack their village and take all their livestock. The Midianites are taking, robbing them of their source of sustenance, their food. And so what is Gideon doing? Gideon is out grinding wheat in a place that you're not supposed to grind wheat, but he's doing that so that the Midianites will not see and come in and take his family's grain. Now, here's another important information that you must learn about Gideon and the reason why he's doing that, because he is the youngest in his father's household. There's another verse further on that we read about that. And back in those days, the youngest son of the family, right? The youngest one in the family line, he would not go out to battle he, he would not do the hard work. He would not go and farm like the older brothers. He would stay at home, and he would be responsible for the household tasks. He would be responsible for the sheep and the chickens and the grain and cooking. If you're familiar with the Bible, you would know that that was the case with Jacob. That was also the case with King David. And that's also the case here with Gideon. Why is he grinding wheat? Because he's the youngest brother, and He's responsible for the household tasks. He is to work alongside mom. All right, that's his job. He's not a hunter, he's got to work alongside mom. And he is doing everything he can to stay out of trouble. All he's thinking about right right then is how to survive and how to provide. How to survive and how to provide. I want to stay out of trouble, I want to live. And I want to make sure that my family eats. That's all he's thinking about. That's a very small vision for his life. Many of us are living this small vision that Gideon was living at the time. All we care about is to survive and to provide. That's all we think about. All we think about. Yet, God had a bigger vision for Gideon than he had for himself. See, God wants you to live a life beyond yourself, All he can think of is of himself and of his clan. That's it. Back then, you lived for your family. That's all he's thinking about. And God wants to expand his perspective. God wants him to live a life beyond himself. God wants him to live a bigger life than the one that he's living right now. And it's the same for you and I. God wants you to live a bigger life than the one that you're living right now. God wants you to live a life that's not just concerned with surviving and providing god wants you to thrive he wants you to see your own reality beyond yourself god wants Gideon to take his eyes out of the grind out of the grain that he is grinding and that he would lift his head and look around and see the needs of the people god wants him to be a deliverer god wants him to lift the yoke of oppression for the others forget about your life Forget about just surviving and providing. I want you to thrive and I want you to see life beyond your miserable small reality. I want you to look beyond. God wants you to look beyond yourself. God wants you to lift your head and look around. There's a lot of need. There's a lot of potential in you. And so the angel of the Lord comes to his encounter. Leaves the tree and goes and meets Gideon while he is grinding the wheat. And in verse 12, we, we, we learn about that dialogue that starts there. And there's two things that the angel of the Lord says to Gideon. The first thing he says, God is with you. Now, here's what I imagine. I imagine that at that moment, Gideon was very lonely because his brothers were going about the household or the clan's business and he was there left alone doing the menial tasks, the household tasks. He oftentimes did that alone, like shepherds were like that. David, who similarly was the youngest of his household, was always out in the fields, and he had a lot of time to write a lot of poems, a lot of songs, because he was always alone. And I think that Gideon lived that same type of reality. He was alone, but he not only felt alone, but he felt abandoned and forsaken by God, because in verse 13, after God addresses him, He says, then, if you are with me, why all this pain? Why have you forsaken us? He is feeling forsaken by God. And yet God comes to him and he says, I am with you to show him that even though he is the smallest or the youngest of his clan, and he is part of the weakest tribe, God still cares about his life and cares about every single little detail of his life. Some of you here today think that God is very concerned with the big matters of this world, and he is not in any way concerned with the life in which you live, the small things. That's why you, you don't even bother to pray to God because, man, my life is too small. It's a, it's a speck compared to the immensity that there is in this world and God that God needs to be concerned and worried about. I don't want to bother God with my own life. You think that God doesn't care about you. Some of you have been through hardships in life, through pain and suffering, Some of you were born in disadvantage and and situations where you're in disadvantage like Gideon and you think that God doesn't care about your life. But this passage and this word of God to Gideon comes as an affirmation to us to say that God cares about you more than you can ever dare believe and imagine. He cares about you more than you will ever know and you will ever imagine. And then the second thing that the angel tells Gideon is, Mighty man of valor. Now, if you were standing there or sitting there and you overheard that conversation between the angel and Gideon, let's say you were sipping your coffee or your tea, you would would have been... (laughs) What? Because here's a guy who is the smallest in his family. He is part of the smallest clan and the weakest tribe, the tribe of Manasseh. How many stories do you know about the tribe of Manasseh? And he's under a yoke of oppression, his whole people. I mean, his, his people's under this yoke of oppression. And he would say, this guy, a mighty man of valor? Right? You would have said that. See, when we think of Gideon, the story of Gideon, we think that Gideon is this guy that's hitting the gym every day. You know, he's like this valiant soldier that God says, I'm going to promote you into a general. You have so much potential. I'm going to call you to deliver my people. That's the, the image that we have of Gideon. That's not at all who Gideon. Yet God comes and affirms him because God has a bigger purpose for his life than anything he can come up with. Bigger purpose, a bigger vision, a bigger plan. If I were to ask some of you here today, what's your life's plan? What's your objectives? What's your goal? You would tell me. You would spend maybe a couple minutes explaining to me where you want to be in five years and 10 years and 20 years. And could I challenge you today to say that God has a bigger vision for your life than any vision that you can come up for yourself, that God has a greater purpose for your life than any purpose that you can craft for yourself, which by the way, nowadays is in fashion, you create your own meaning and your own purpose, but God always has a bigger vision and a bigger purpose for you than you could ever dare to believe or imagine. And God is able to speak words of blessings and affirmation to Gideon, not based on what can be said of him in the present, but based on how God sees him in the future. The reason why God can come and speak words of blessings into our lives today is not based on what can be said of you and I in the present. Because yes, we mess up and we screw up and we've done things in the past and we might not be necessarily living a successful, thriving, spiritual life But God doesn't see you in the present. He sees you in the future, and he speaks to your future. And that's grace, and that's gospel, that's good news. Which brings us to a moment of reflection right now. There's three things that I want you to think through with me. Number one is this, is that most of us here in this room are living beneath our God-given potential. And the reason why we're living beneath our God-given potential is because we have adopted this story of, of us, this opinion of ourselves, this assessment of ourselves that is not God's. It's an assessment that we have crafted based on our failures of our present and our past. It's an assessment that others have given to us, but these are not assessments that were given to us by God. And it's keeping us stagnant. And it's keeping us beneath our God-given potential. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. It's very, 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 very important that you are aware of your weaknesses if you were to live into this God-given potential. Because no one can be worked on unless they realize their weaknesses. You with me? Gideon is very aware of his weaknesses. He's aware of his limitations. He fires back at God. Why would you pick me? Yet one thing that this story wants us to see, and I want you to see as well, is not enough just for you to see your weaknesses and be aware of your weaknesses. You must be aware of the power of God, of what God can do in your life and through your life. You must not underestimate that which God wants to do in you and through you. You must not discount that. It's not just about your efforts and about your work. It's about that which God can do in you and through you through his power. So don't underestimate that. And lastly, here's another thought for us today based on what we've learned so far. We must ask God, I pray to God, that we would have this same perspective that God has for people. that we would not look at people and cast an assessment of them based on what we're able to see in the present, but actually that we're able to see that which God can do through them in the future, that God would give us vision for people's lives. The potential. See, <laughs> I, I remember reading in one of Tim Keller's books, that's one of the reasons for you to get married. It's for you to look at somebody and say, hey, This skinny old guy here, you know, he's not all that he can be, but 10 years from now, I can make something out of him. You see what I'm saying? That's gotta be a motivation for marriage. He talks about that. And we ought to look at people and say, they're not ready. And in fact, there's some things in their lives that are hindering them from being all that God wants them to be. But I wanna believe in the future that God has for them I want to speak to that future. I've been praying to God for that in my life. That's what it's about, like, in terms of raising leaders. I've always had these uh, Bible studies for business guys. And every time I put a Bible study for business guys, I I, I want to make sure that there are no Christians there or very little Christians. Because I, I want to walk them through the whole process and I want to see them leading in a godly manner, their companies, their families, the church. And I've done that recently, like about a year and a half ago, I started one in Cuba, Biscayne, 12 guys, maybe a couple non-Christians. Like in, 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 in a little over a year, about eight of them have come to faith in Christ. And every time that I'm prepping myself for that Bible study, I don't, I don't even do theological prepping for the Bible study, but it's mental prepping and prayer. I'm saying, God, I'm going to go there and start, talk to my future leaders All right, give me a word that can give them vision, that can motivate change in their lives right now. What if you were to have that perspective as you're speaking to your kids, as you're speaking to those who work for you and with you, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, for your leaders even, what if you were not speaking to their present self, but their future self? That's how God speaks to us. Now, before these men that I am running with can become these powerful godly leaders before your children can grow to become strong men and women of God before Gideon becomes this mighty man of valor he has to undergo God's preparation process will you welcome God's preparation process in your life will you number one admit that he's at work because he's at work in our lives in Ephesians 2, the apostle Paul writes this, look, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And God's preparation process may have many phases, but I wanna highlight two here today. There's two things that must happen in our lives in order for us to be prepared to live out God's given potential so that we can walk in these good works that has been prepared by God for us beforehand. The first one is, the first one is pain. <laughs> God, God wants to refine us through pain. Look at, look at his response in verse 13. Look, go back to verse 13. He says, uh, if, if the Lord is with us, he asks the question, if the Lord is with us, Why then has all this happened to us? Okay, so you're saying that you're with me and that you're for me. But what explains, how does that explain all the pain that we're going through? Because God is preparing them for the next phase. See, many of us make the mistake that Gideon makes when it comes to pain and suffering in our lives in relation to God. Here's the first mistake that we make. The first mistake mistake that we make is we believe that that pain is an evidence that God has abandoned and forsaken us. When we're going through pain and suffering, says God doesn't love me, God has abandoned me, God has forsaken me. That's exactly what he says in the following verse. But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of Midian. We believe that when we're going through pain and suffering that God has abandoned or forsaken us. We believe that this is an evidence for that. Instead of asking God, God, how are you using this pain in my life? How are you working in it and through it to build me to the person that you want me to be? We're not asking that question. We're asking, why, why, don't, you, why don't you love me? Why have you abandoned me? It's the wrong question. And here, here's a second mistake that we make, same mistake that Gideon is, is making here, is that When I go to God in pain and suffering, I'm going through pain and suffering, the only thing that I'm asking God to do most of the time is to remove the pain and suffering in my life. God, how how can you lift this from me right now? Instead of asking God, God, how can you make me the man or the woman that can handle pain and suffering in life? Because only the people that can handle pain and suffering well can help those who are going through pain and suffering in their present. See, we're thinking about... Being used by God. We're thinking here about fulfilling God's given purpose in our life. We're thinking here about living up to our God-given potential. But you need this preparation. See how it's necessary. People that haven't suffered enough can't. They don't have the ability. I don't care. That's why sometimes some young pastors come and preach. And Beth and I were sitting and looking. Good sermon, but he just hasn't been through it. He <laughs> can't help us. Just haven't been through it Enough. Pain is used as a tool in God's hand to shape us, to purify us. I mean, look at the verse that we have in Isaiah. There's a verse in the, in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 48:10. Behold, I have refined you. God speaking to his people. Behold, I have refined you. Not as silver, but I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. So some of you have been through this. And you've been worked on by God. Some of you, oh, I I haven't had this enough in my life. Well, it's about to come. Because it comes to all of us. Pain and suffering. But when it comes, or if you're going through it right now, know this, that God is wanting to do something great with you through that pain and that suffering. He wants to use that pain and that suffering to bring glory to his name and to help others, many others. And so, would you have that perspective but here's the second thing that involves God's preparation process. And not only must we be refined through pain, but our worship must be reformed. God desires that our worship would be reformed. He needs to reform our worship before using us in a big and a mighty way. So after, uh, after that conversation, I'm speeding things up here. After this conversation, Gideon Ask God, well, then how, how, how can I be certain that this is really you, God, that's speaking through this angel to me? I want to test this. God said, fine, we'll, we'll test it. On the other side of the test, he says, oh, yeah, in fact, that it is you. And then God commissions him to do something very difficult, and it's there from verses 25 onward, if you have time later on to read. But God basically says to him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back into your village, and I want you to get your father's strongest ox, and I want you to tie the altars of the Baals to that ox. And I want you to drive that ox. And I want you to tear down all the altars. And that, that, that was really hard for him. Not because that was a hard task in itself, but because the people in his village, the Israelites at the time, they loved their little Baal altars. They were, they had affection. They had little affection for, for their idols. And what an interesting thing back in that time that Gideon was living was was not that they had completely forgotten God's worship. They continued to worship God. They had, you know, they had their their services for the God of the Bible, and they told their kids the story of God, God's faithfulness and God's salvation. In fact, that's the only reason why Gideon can say, well, I heard these stories about how great you are and how you have saved us and have loved us, and you are in covenant with us, because his parents told him the story. So they, they, they did not completely abandon the Jewish religion, but they wanted the Jewish religion to coexist with the pagan religions. They wanted God to share a place in their households with an altar of Baal as well. They wanted God to coexist with their idols. And that is the same request sometimes that we're making God. Isn't that funny? Now, we may not have altars to idols made of stone and wood in our houses and in our lives, but we have it in our hearts. We have it in our lives. There's things such as work and children and nationalism and many other things in our lives that we have given ourselves to. And we want God to coexist with these idols. And God says, I will not have any of that. Before I come and move, before I come and deliver, before I come and save, these idols got to go away. These altars got to be torn down, boy. Tie him to the ox and drag him down. And by the way, he did it by night because he was afraid because he knew that people would be ticked off at that. In fact, that's what happens in the morning. They wake up and say, who did this? We must kill whoever did this, right? It's gone. (laughs) Believe this, believe this. Before unleashing your God-given potential, you must break the leash of your idols in your life. And it's so logical. It's not just that God is saying, unless you do this, I'm not going to move. But if you stay at it, God cannot move because you're tied to these idols. Let me give you an example. Let's say... God has called you to share his word, to share his good news to the world. He has gifted you. You have gifts of speaking and influence and all that sort of thing. And he wants you to do that. But let's say that before God in your life comes nationalism and your politics. If you have an altar for the American flag in your life, okay, I'm getting a Very dangerous ground here, but I'm going to speak about it anyways. Because there was an article in The Atlantic that came out this week that spoke about that. That the reason why we as Christians are losing our witness, the power of our witness, is because we have been married to our nation and married to our politics. See what that means? Like you, oh, I want to share the gospel. And people say, I want to hear you because I already know your agenda. See, your eye was keeping you on the leash. You hear what I'm saying? Let's say God has given you, let me give another example. Let's move out of there. I know it's uncomfortable for some of you, but let's move out of there. Let's say God has given you a passion to meet the physical needs of others, to relieve people of their physical pain. But let's say you have this idol of materialism that you gotta prove yourself through your image because of the things that you can buy and the places you can go and live. And God is saying, Here, here's this big need here, and you're like, Yeah, my heart is there, but your idol is like, come on, boys, stay down here. You see what I'm saying? You're, you have to break the leash of your idols in order to unleash your God-given potential. There's no other way, guys. It's, and it's hard and it's painful, but you must do it. And here's the process of how to do it. Three three things. Number one, you must identify your idols. Identify them. Call them by name. In fact, before God sends a rescuer and a deliverer, go read there in the beginning of chapter 6, God sends them a prophet a prophet to confront them of their idolatry and of their sin and call each of those idols out. You must call them out in your life. You must invite people that really know you and ask the question, what do you think are the things in my life that are more important than God? You must enter into a season of discernment where you should pray and ask God, God, what are the things in my life and in my heart that are taking priority over you? Now this is a very dangerous prayer to pray. This is a very difficult and dangerous question for you to ask your friends, people that know you know why, because the answer that may come back may you may not like. It may come back like, hey, you know what it is? Your kids. Here, here, here's what it is. It, it, it's, your, it's your nationalism. Here, here's what it is your, is your work. And you may not like that, but unless you identify your idols, first, you cannot free yourself from their grip. Secondly, you have to admit your idolatry. You have to say not just these are my idols, but I am worshiping them. You have to admit it. And it's hard to admit. But, you know, my wife is a mental health counselor, a therapist. And unless you identify your trauma and unless you own your trauma and your story, you cannot find healing. So you must admit your idolatry. Yes, I do worship these things. And that's where the process of repentance and change starts with acknowledging your sin and acknowledging your idolatry. Not that these things are bad in themselves because idols are not necessarily bad things. They're good things turned into ultimate things. But they cannot take the place of God. You know, in the first commandment, you shall not have other gods before me. You know what a word literally in Hebrew means? You shall not have other gods before my face. The word there is panim, face. God saying you should look only and exclusively at me. Nothing can take your affections before me. And then thirdly, you must destroy the altars. Now, destroying the altars, it's even harder. So think about this. The altar is the place where you offer worship to your deity, correct? Let's say you have false deities in your life. What are the altars that you go to worship then? To your kids, little leagues, sometimes. Sometimes it's social media. If politics is one of your idols, nationalism, that's your altar. And you go to, and some of you need to shut down your accounts because that's your altar. You must destroy the altars, and it's hard. But here's what will give you power to do that. It's not just about destroying the altars, but the second thing that God tells Gideon is this. Like, I want you to, you know, tie these altars to this bowl, and I want you to just, like, level everything Well, here's what I want you to do after that. I want you to build an altar according to my specifications for my worship amongst your village, amongst your people. And unless, here's the truth of the matter, guys. Unless there is a bigger altar for God in your life, you won't have the power to expel your affections for these false gods. There's got to be a stronger altar altar for God. It's actually to the degree that there's more of God in your life, that there is less interest in all the other small little gods. There's got to be more of God in your life. It's got to be an altar to the true God in your life. You know, it's like the hymn writer says, Turn, look, look, we 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 both. Those are some of these words when we're singing. It. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You know, one of the things that has always puzzled me about the story of Gideon, especially this chapter, is what's up with all the tests that he's putting God through. First test, he says, "You know, stay here. I'm going to bring something back." and and he brings back from his house, so so God still stays under the tree. Okay, I'll wait here. So he, he brings back meat, some bread, and broth. And he's offering it to God. And I don't know what he's thinking about the a test that he's trying to put God through. But God puts him through a test. God puts himself through this test. And he says, here's what I want you to do. Because you're asking me, God said to him, because you're asking me, whether it's really me, so that you would know that I am with you and that I'm for you. I'm calling you to this very difficult mission, right? You want this affirmation that you're with and that, that I am with and that I'm for you. He says, yes. Take the food, put it upon this rock, and pour the broth over it. And he does it. And then we read in the text that this fire came miraculously from this rock and consumed the offering. It's like, oh, whoa. That's you. Yeah, I'm affirmed. It's really you. I'm going to obey you. See, some of us are asking that question. Okay, pastor, thank you for being so encouraging today, speaking about my God-given potential, that I'm living beneath it, that I can live above it. all great. But how do I know, really, that God is with me and for me? At the altar. That's where we're affirmed. How did God affirm Gideon at the altar. Now, the difference is this that Gideon was affirmed at this altar under a tree. We are affirmed at the altar, which is the tree. When you ask the question, God, how do I know, how can I know that you have made me for greater things? How can I be sure that you're with me and for me? Just look at the cross. It's a tree, which is also an altar. When you look at the cross, you can know without a reasonable doubt that God is with you because on the cross, Jesus was forsaken for you. When you look at the cross and you ask God, God, how can I know that you are for me? How can you not get the assurance that God is for you when you look at the cross if Jesus absorbed God's wrath just like the fleece absorbed all the water and everything around it was dry? Get that? That was the second test, by the way. And it was because Jesus absorbed all of the wrath of God on the cross that we can be dried of that wrath and be set clean and free to live out our God-given potential. At the altar of the cross, we are affirmed by God. Now, this passage, this story ends in a very encouraging way. It's a very different man um, in the end of this chapter than the one that we read about in the beginning of the chapter, In verse 34, we read this, that after all of this, now he comes forth clothed with the Spirit of God. It's no longer the fearful Gideon who's doing his household tasks, hiding from the Midianites, but now he's coming out filled, clothed with the Spirit of God. Because that's what happens for all of those that have received their affirmation on the cross of Jesus Christ. They've been clothed with the spirit of God and the power of God and the work of God is now through them. But in order to get there, first you must gain God's perspective and you must welcome God's preparation process. And I hope that you would gain both. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for, uh, for the gospel and this encouraging story of how you did so much In the life of someone that was overlooked and discounted by others, such as Gideon. Father, how he was able to rise above and live up to his God-given potential. And I tend to believe, Father, that in this room here today, there are many men and women that are living beneath that should live above. And, And, Father, that you have a greater vision for their lives than they are having now for themselves and I pray that, Father, they would come to that understanding. They would, they would gain their, this new perspective of how you see them and how you see life in the world. And, Father, that you would try them through pain. And, Father, by uprooting the idols in their lives, that you would set them free. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, church.